Hello, pharmacists and friends. Today is February 28, 2023, and welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and our guests discuss the latest public health issues. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like me can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Jake Lawrence, and I'm in my sixth and final year of pharmacy school at the University of Rhode Island, working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Bradberg. And I'm Jeff Bradbury. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice and clinical research at the URI College of Pharmacy and the Academic Collaborations Officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. So we got some snow today. Jake, what do you think? Well, in typical New England fashion, I'm not sure if I'm going to be shoveling my way out or sliding my way out the driveway. So, Well, I, I had to take a sledding break. Thankfully, not like last year when my partner like nearly broke her tailbone sledding down the hill. We were, we were okay oh today. But uh, we, we got some great things. You know, last week we had some talk about anti-obesity medications. So we're covering all the public health things. Stay tuned to all our social medias for that. But I think you want to introduce our guest here, Jake. Yes, we're very excited for our topic today on prison health. And luckily, we have formal medical director of Rhode Island Department of Corrections, Dr. Justin Burke. So Dr. Burke, please introduce yourself for our listeners. Amazing. Very happy to be on. You guys do great work. Excited to, to talk with you today about a topic that I'm very passionate about. So my name is Dr. Justin Burke. I am an addiction medicine physician and primary care physician who has done some time taking care of patients while incarcerated in jail and prisons. As you mentioned, I was the former medical director at the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, so oversaw all healthcare operations for those that are incarcerated in the state of Rhode Island. Um, during 2020 to 2022, which as you may be aware of, was uh, during a pandemic, so there was a lot of different activities going on. Um, but a patient population I'm very passionate about and glad to get to discuss with you and your listeners and, and talk about anything of interest about caring for people who are incarcerated. Well, and preventing, and preventing people from getting incarcerated. And more importantly, preventing people. Very Absolutely. excited for that. Prison healthcare yeah. is is harm reduction. Happy to happy to talk about that. So. Oh, exciting. And Jake, you spent some time in prison. Oh, wait. Sorry. I got, I got one. <laughs> totally fine. Yeah. So recently, a couple of rotations ago. I was working on my community appy and I spent some time in the Rhode Island Department of Corrections vaccinating most of the people in prison. And it was definitely interesting. I learned some unique things about the structure of the Rhode Island prison system that I didn't know before going in. So uh, Dr. Burke, could you tell us why the Rhode Island prison system is unique? It is. So we can start by saying, you know, the Department of Corrections in Rhode Island is unique because it's what's called a unified system. So when we talk about people who are incarcerated, they're really incarcerated in two different facilities, typically. One is jail, which is for people who have a very short time that they're going to spend incarcerated or who are pre-adjudicated, meaning they are awaiting trial. They have not yet been found guilty and sentenced, but they are awaiting their trial and are therefore innocent until proven guilty. So they're being detained in a correctional facility in a jail, but have not yet been proven guilty. Those are people who are in short-term facilities. There's a lot of turnover. There's an enormous people coming in and coming out of jails. The median length of stay in Rhode Island for someone who's awaiting trial is about four days. So 10,000 admissions a year in Rhode Island, a lot of in and out. Meanwhile, prison is what we think of as sentenced individuals. So if you've been found guilty of a crime and sentenced to five years, that's typically in a prison system. Now, in Rhode Island, this is all a little bit confusing, more confusing because it's a unified system. So whether you're in a jail setting or a prison setting, you're in the Rhode Island Department of Corrections, which is a one-mile radius campus that has several security facility levels and an intake facility that essentially serves as a jail, but it's all part of one 
unified system where when you go from jail to prison, it's basically you're in the same system. You're going across the street. You just have a different flag in the in the chart. And is everyone taken in at the same place or the same the same system? So you're coming for four days or four years. You're coming in in the same. Absolutely, you're coming in through the intake services center. If you're a if you're a, a man and if you are awaiting your trial there and then sentenced, you'll be transferred to one of the security facilities. If you're a woman, you'll go to the women's facility. That is both a jail and a prison. Essentially, that is one facility for both awaiting trial and sentence. And then there's a couple small exceptions where if you are a federal, um, been found guilty of a federal crime, you will often go to a federal detention center, which is the Wyatt Detention Center, or if you're an ICE detainee, that's at uh, the Wyatt facility. But so the federal prison system is a separate system. The DOC in Cranston, Rhode Island is related to state law, which is where the majority of people who are incarcerated are under violations of state law. So we don't have county jails. So the federal, the Wyatt Detention Center is actually in, in Central Falls, I believe, Rhode Island. And then we don't really have like, you know, people are like, I went to county lockup. We don't really have, we have counties in Rhode Island, but we don't have any county jails or local jails. Is that right? That's exactly right. Other states, the city or the county might run the, the jail system. In Rhode Island, it's all state run as one unified system. Yeah, I found that really interesting. Obviously, coming from Massachusetts, where everything's pretty separated out, every week we would go back to vaccinate more incarcerated people. My preceptor would be like, okay, come back here, same address. We're going to be in this building this time. <laughs> We're going to be over here in this building to do max or min, which made it convenient for us to vaccinate people. Everyone was kind of in the same place, kind of get all the work done nice and easily. But yeah, that was definitely a surprise to me. Interesting. And how many, what's the average census? You said 10,000 per year, but like like today, what would you guess the number of people would be there? Absolutely. So the typical census was about 900 individuals in the intake services center. So that's like the jail system. That's where there's 10,000 admissions per year. So there's a lot of churn. And then there's approximately uh, between 12 and 1,300 scattered around the, the sentence facilities, which are based on security level, minimum, medium, maximum, and then high security um, and again, you know, an important point between jail and prison is that the population's health needs are clearly quite different. In jail, it's people who are coming in and out of the community. So a lot of times it is some infectious disease prevalence and things that you might see, whereas in the sentence population, it's a lot more kind of health maintenance, chronic care conditions, even aging and elderly populations. Well, it's interesting because I think of those numbers and just, I, I don't work in community pharmacy. I try to improve community pharmacy, but you've got, you know, a small city there where you know, I grew up in a small town, about 2,200 people in this one square mile. There's significant, and we'll talk about disproportionately significant acute and chronic health care needs. And then you've got those 10,000 admissions. And I know what, what you've helped do and, and you're going forward and before you really optimize the screening and care of all those folks. I mean, there's really a significant medication portion to that. And I know the URI College of Pharmacies had a very long running, you know, both logistical and clinical management system. And as, as Jake was doing, you know, a public health role there for these folks who were, you know, very marginalized before they got there and more marginalized after they get there and more vulnerable. And so I think there's, so just to let our listeners know that there's there's a lot of healthcare that can be done there. But while we get to Jake's finely written intro here on about incarceration in the U.S. I'll try to keep it short. It's no secret that we have the highest level of incarceration of pretty much any developed nation, over 10 million people uh, nationwide who are incarcerated in both state and federal facilities. Disease spares no one. It affects people of all backgrounds, but evidence shows that there is a direct link to lower socioeconomic class in non-communicable disease. So among these 10 million incarcerated people, 
a large majority of them belong to the marginalized society and disparity groups who may be affected more disproportionately. Um, the National Commission for Correctional Healthcare provides guidance and standards on prisoner rights and constitutionally appropriate healthcare for them. Um, but the level of care received can vary widely between different facilities, institutions, states. So could you tell us a little bit about why you took this job and were interested in delivering healthcare in the prison system? Yeah. So it, you know, just to echo a couple of things you mentioned, like there's wide heterogeneity over what type of healthcare is delivered um, across different states. And to echo your point that this is a group of individuals who are often very much put on the margins of society, mass incarceration of putting people behind bars dramatically affects people of Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, individuals that face a lot of structural racism and structural barriers to thriving in their communities and society and in their healthcare settings. I really found working in a jail and prison through, frankly, my passion for addiction medicine and that in the community as a primary care doctor, I really enjoyed and found a lot of meaning in working with people who suffered from opiate use disorder. We have, as a physician, these amazing tools like buprenorphine and medications for opiate use disorder that can completely revolutionize someone's life, that can be life-saving, that can help them focus on life and job and their families. And to see this turnaround and making such an impact in someone's life is really what brought me to the field of medicine in general. Now, people that have opiate use disorder the natural progression of disease often is unfortunately incarceration. This is, you know, there's a war on drugs, you know, drugs are illegal and people that struggle with addiction often struggle with a lot of other social determinants of health that are correlated and associated with increased likelihood of becoming incarcerated. So I got an interested in incarceration health and, and carceral health because my patients, frankly, were going to jail and prison. And so I started working in a jail and prison when I was doing my training in Baltimore and was starting to essentially just do some primary care and sick call visits while I was here at Brown doing primary care. Then during the pandemic, my predecessor during kind of the height of the pandemic uh, ultimately left her position. She had done really wonderful work, uh, but at that time felt it was time to, you know, kind of move on and the Department of Corrections needed someone to fill in and quickly and Rhode Island's a small state, you know, I'll be very humble to say that they needed a, an MD provider who could supervise, they needed someone who was in the state of Rhode Island, licensed in the state of Rhode Island, and maybe had some correctional health care exposure. And there's not many of them. And I have a lot of interest in this. I had a business background. I was excited to try to, you know, help deliver positive health care to people that were otherwise marginalized and saw it as an opportunity to really try to be a part of something really good in a time of, frankly, crisis, which is COVID in, in jails and prisons. That's great. Now that we know kind of why you got into this, where your passions lie, what were your goals when you took on this job, especially during the height of the pandemic? Day one, where do you start? What do you tackle? So my day one was unique from other medical directors day one in that the number one priority without question was COVID-19. It was at a time where COVID-19 was spreading in the state of Rhode Island. It was spreading in the correctional facilities at the DOC. And so priority number one was how can we mitigate the current spread of infection? How can we treat people who are infected with COVID? How can we prevent another outbreak in the future? And I'll be honest, it was somewhat serendipitous that this was at the time where the COVID vaccine was just starting to be available. And there was some advocacy component of the job of 
listen, to best take care of these patients, people who are incarcerated are at high risk of COVID. This is evidence-based. People who are incarcerated have a very high likelihood of coming right back to the community. We talk about the median length of stay is three days. These are not people who are isolated from society, you know, because sometimes people want to think that, that, you know, the people in prison, we don't have to care about anymore. These are people coming in and out of society. It's a very porous structure, including, you know, correctional officers, nurses, social workers, people are coming in and out. This, you know, correctional healthcare, carceral healthcare is community healthcare. And then truth be told, every state there is a political component. We have these vaccines. We got to get them into arms. We got to be efficient. And I'll be, you know, we'll say I'll be very grateful to our Department of Health at the time and Dr. Alexander Scott, who was saying, we want to be efficient and quick, but we also want to make sure we're approaching this with a racial justice lens. And look, if you want to efficiently get shots into arms of people that need it most, that are at highest risk of infection, at higher risk of overdose, and that represent the diversity of the state of Rhode Island and that are disproportionately affected by COVID and other health concerns. We have a lot of those here, you know, in a correctional facility. And so prioritizing the vaccination of incarcerated individuals was really like the number one priority in making that place safe, but also using the correctional healthcare system as a critical access point for addressing the spread of COVID throughout the community. Interesting. Okay. Well, if you don't mind me jumping around a little bit, Dr. Bradford, since we're on the subject of COVID, I was reading a bit of the literature you've published recently, a report on COVID-19 vaccination rates in the Rhode Island Department of Corrections. It was between uh, December 2020 and early 2021. The report showed that more than three-fourths of the sentenced individuals, somewhere around 70%, accepted and received the vaccine. The first four months after the vaccine was offered was around 80% of the sentenced population and around 70 of the staff. Um, when I was vaccinating the inmates last fall, when I was at the Department of Corrections, I noticed there was a pretty strong divide. I'm not sure if it was um, friend groups or blocks or how it was associated. It seems like there were some who were very interested in receiving vaccinations for both flu and COVID and then others who were strongly against it. And it looks like there might have been some more paperwork and steps involved to refuse the vaccine itself. Um, so maybe to deter people from not receiving it. But what do you think's changed since that strong uptake in the beginning of the pandemic to now? Certainly. So people in correctional facilities have the same hesitancy that we see in the communities. So there are, are clearly populations who are hesitant to accept the COVID vaccine, the flu vaccine, or other vaccines in general. And frankly, there is some information asymmetry that when you're incarcerated, your access to high quality healthcare information can often be somewhat limited. And there's resources that kind of prevent the extreme educational components that are really needed to make an informed decision. You know, first and foremost, it's extremely important that people who are incarcerated have diminished autonomy. It's very clear, you know, they have a diminished voice, they have diminished power, and that's intentional. That's what the correctional system is meant to do. That is a structural component. But so ensuring that that autonomy is supported, I think, is like clear number one priority in respecting their autonomy and dignity. So if anyone that wants to refuse any level of care, whether it's a dental cleaning or um, healthcare or a vaccine, that is certainly their prerogative and should be supported. What we did very early on was try to provide as much education as possible. And as you remember, you know, there was, there were still some question marks that I think are still ongoing, but provide the latest up-to-date information. We had people going cell to cell, providing information, answering questions to really try to build confidence that this is something that's going to help. 
that this is something meant to protect and that we're, you know, frankly, kind of lucky to have a progressive system that is able to get us vaccine early. And again, it was on the tail end of this outbreak that had just gone through the Department of Corrections. People were scared. And so this was a tool we were able to use. It's interesting, you know, people, we're a reactive society and I teach a class um, going on 10 years now called Communicating Vaccines. And so it's always, <laughs> it's, there's something new every year. And Jake took my class a year, about a year and a half ago. And what I did that time was instead of talking about, here's the vaccine and here's how it works and here's hesitancies, we said, what are vulnerable groups? And there was, you know, we talked about indigenous folks, we talked about black individuals, Hispanic individuals, which are disproportionately represented in prison health care. And every group said the same thing, which is there's this inherent generationally derived distrust or mistrust of healthcare providers. So that autonomy is so important is that everyone should have autonomy in healthcare, but now you've been outright refused service because of the color of your skin or because of what country you grew up in or what reservation you're on. And now you're supposed to take this vaccine. Like that's, there's a lot there. And it, it's interesting because I assume the students would find data to show, oh, there was disparities and black folks didn't get as many vaccines. It was like, no, actually they got more. And actually recent data for COVID shows there's more white people dying of COVID than people in that BIPOC group, which, so it's fascinating how that has switched and there's a lot of factors. It's a different podcast, but so <laughs> did you see again, anecdotally, or maybe in your research, sort of a racial divide in vaccine interest, you know, going cell to cell and person to person is important, but like what, what worked to overcome hesitancy or what have your colleagues found? Yeah, you know, I think it's tough to say that there was racial disparity in vaccine uptake in our facility, though one of the things, truthfully, as somewhat a researcher at the core who then took on this job, it does make you realize that when you're like operationalizing a vaccine distribution plan, it's not always done in a way that makes it very easy to collect data. You know, the number one goal was we're getting vaccines armed, providing education. And sometimes that meant we did not have a strong infrastructure for analyzing the data, which if we had time, that would be wonderful as like a program development. But sometimes those were challenges throughout our course where just having the data infrastructure to do quality improvement is, I think, something that is a challenge in correctional healthcare in general. But as far as, you know, what Rhode Island did, I will say our uptake, you know, the percentage of people who were interested in vaccine was much higher than what other correctional facilities found. Individuals who are incarcerated in other states, correctional officers that were working in other states did not have, you know, a 70 to 80% initial vaccine uptake. And so we had a lot of people from around the nation, you know, asking, what are you doing? How are you doing this? And I think there's really, you know, maybe two or three things that did help provide. I, I like to think that over the course of healthcare services in Rhode Island, there had been some rapport building through things like the Medication for Addiction Treatment Program, which has seemed to be, you know, very nationally apprised of recruiting and retaining um, providers who provide compassionate care to patients um, and really trying to build some trust early on. There were a couple individuals in particular who were literally going cell to cell and just sitting with individuals, talking to them, trying to see what their reservations were, trying to you know provide answers to anyone's minor hesitations. And I think that investment went a long way. And I think by getting people who were incarcerated prioritized, including correctional officer staff early on, 
people recognize like this is a gift. You know, there's a lot of people that do not have access to this vaccine right now that really want it. And so all of those things really came together to make it so that we had a really vaccinated community. And that really, I mean, did help prevent, you know, future spread infections. You know, it made it so that we really, this was a much less of an issue from hospitalizations and deaths were almost non-existent after this vaccine campaign, which was really a big success. Well, it's good to hear that we did a podcast on misinformation and the cure for misinformation is information and it's only information if that person's listening, right? We have a crisis in listening, uh, not mm-hmm. in discourse, or maybe it is discourse, but we're having discourse, but if the person's not listening. And so I, that, that's great that you've built the trust and, and really describing what we call in pharmacy motivational interviewing to say, like, what do you want? Give you agency. And to think of this population as having the least agency by definition, I think that even that little bit there, and and you know, as an addiction doc, that that's, this is my segue, Jake, uh, into MOUD, into medications for addiction treatment and the priority role that the Rhode Island Department of Corrections has done in that. Jake, why don't you transition to talk about what we've done there right here in Rhode Island? So Rhode Island was the first state to offer comprehensive treatment for inmates with opioid use disorder. All three available medications behind the wall starting in 2016. It was shown that there was about 60% decrease in mortality on release in these patients. Could you tell us a bit about this program and how it's evolved during your tenure? Yeah. So this is something that truthfully brought me to Rhode Island. So I was doing my training in Baltimore, passionate about addiction medicine and people who are incarcerated, heard what Jody Rich and Jen Clark and people were doing up here. I called up Jody and said, hey, I want to hear about you know this program. He said, come on up. And so when I was in residency, I came up, I saw what the program was like, was really excited about it. And so moved to Rhode Island in part because of this MAT program, which was so novel, but also pretty straightforward of treating addiction among a patient population that is highly vulnerable for for overdose and opiate use disorder turns out to be very effective. So when we have all this evidence that medications for addiction treatment help people with opiate use disorder, prevent return to use, prevents overdose, prevents some recidivism, you know, going back to jail and prison in some studies, you would think this would be low hanging fruit in a correctional setting. Not only that, but correctional settings, um, people who are incarcerated are really the only population in the United States that have a constitutional right to health care. And so a constitutional right to the standard of care, you have a gold standard treatment for medication for opioid use disorder. You would think this is widely available in all jails and prisons. And that's not the case. Rhode Island was a rare example and continues to be somewhat of a rare example of a facility that offers medication for opioid use disorder. And so the preliminary evidence has shown that this is wildly helpful in transitioning people from incarceration back to the community. This point where people leave prison and go back to the community is one of the highest risks of overdose deaths. And if you have people on treatment, then it really prevents return to use. It really prevents death. It allows people to refocus on their family, on their on their job, and their employment, on the other stuff that happens after incarceration. It continues to, you know, expand in offering All FDA-approved medications, and that includes injectable buprenorphine, is one of the ones that we've been offering now more and more individuals where there's a monthly injection for buprenorphine that's subcutaneous in the abdomen, a great option for people as they leave. But really, like treatment preference is also very important. And the, the best medication for people is the one that they want to take. And so we try to, you know, provide patient preference to make sure that people are are on medicines they want to be on so that they stay on treatment. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. If someone was incarcerated and they were prior on some type of opioid use disorder medication, how does that work with like a carryover continuity of care once they're incarcerated? Absolutely. So if you're on methadone, if you're on buprenorphine, if you're on injectable buprenorphine, if you're on injectable naltrexone, whatever medication can be continued throughout the incarceration with setup for discharge planning. So you continue. We partner with a community-based organization, Kodak Behavioral Healthcare, who is a OTP and opioid treatment provider. They have methadone clinics throughout Rhode Island and some other states, and they are providing the medication across the spectrum. And if you've never been on methadone or you've never been on buprenorphine, while you're incarcerated, you can be initiated, even if it's a short stay, because Kodak has facilities outside of the jail or prison, it offers continuity of care where you're a Kodak patient while you're incarcerated on Monday. If you're released on Tuesday, you're still a Kodak patient in the Kodak system. But there's also great collaboration with all the other wonderful OTPs um, and, and clinics in the state of Rhode Island. So it's become a very good system and the infrastructure has become more robust. Uh, it's a great example that other states try to model. Well, I think the interesting thing is that two things I want to emphasize is that I'm glad you brought up the, you know, we don't have national health care. I don't think anyone listening needs to know that we don't have that in this country. But we do have a national standard of we have national health care, constitutional right to health care in the prison system. And there are many laws that are being employed in different states in the federal system to where people are suing because they can't, Jake brings up a good point, where if you don't get continued on your medication, and I just have to say, you know, we don't deny, or you as medical director and your colleagues didn't say, well, sorry, you don't get your insulin because it's your fault that your pancreas doesn't make insulin, you know, or you don't, you need insulin to treat your diabetes. And that's the sort of, like you said, it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's a very high prevalent population. And you may say, well, gosh, what will happen if you don't have insulin? You may die. These folks will, you know, people have died in custody going through withdrawal, which is entirely preventable, right? And that's, uh, that is, as far as I know, hasn't happened at at RIDOC or definitely not in the last six or seven years. But I I think it's just important to realize, I don't want to anecdotalize this, but just to realize that this is a really easy thing. We're still fighting. There's still, I think, only between one and five percent of all jails and prisons offer any medication is, uh, medications for opioid use disorder. And we've expanded Medicaid in the state, and we're going to talk about Medicaid coverage in prison, probably some things there. But I think the other point I want to make is that you said the highest rate of overdose mortality is in people leaving prison. And again, the key there is that they're leaving because they probably were never started on medications or continued on medications. And so your tolerance goes down. The first thing you do when you leave prison is probably use drugs because this is a different world and all the other things, but it's a 50 times, it is a 5,000% or more increase. It's just inconceivable how it's not two times or three times, it's 50 times the risk of just a person who has opioid use disorder in the community, not just any other person. So I think that's important. And so in places like Scotland, uh, you know, I follow this uh, with naloxone, which is an opioid, very safe and effective opioid antidote. You know, Scotland reduced the mortality rate from overdose, giving naloxone to people on release. And one of the things that RIDOC, that I've been working with on our committees in the state for 10 years is to say, how do you actually hand naloxone to somebody? And the barriers are actually very interesting maybe you want to talk about them, but things like they go to court and they get discharged from court or they have stuff at the prison that they just leave there because they're free. They're not going back there. You know, you see a movie and they're like, well, the guy gets let out of the gates and they walk to their car and then they commit a crime because it's Ocean's Eleven or whatever, you know, but like 
that's not true. That's not how they leave prison. So talk about how difficult it is to sort of that continuative care, providing naloxone, and maybe talk a little bit about uh, vending machines, which I think started uh, when you were there. Yeah. So it's, it is amazing that I don't want to call them all bureaucratic barriers, although some of those certainly exist, but there are significant logistical barriers at every level of healthcare delivery in a jail and prison. And, you know, one of the comments that I often make is, you know, jails and prisons are not designed to deliver healthcare. No one intended them for to deliver healthcare. They are not optimized to deliver healthcare. And so providing naloxone on discharge, I think is about one excellent example of where some of the challenges come up and is the kind of the tip of the iceberg, but definitely something, you know, that I think is extremely important to talk about. One of the biggest struggles with the jailed population, the awaiting trial population, we talked about this high turnover, they're pre-adjudicated, they're awaiting trial. We don't know when they're going to leave. You know, they could leave on a Tuesday, they could leave in seven years. So when you're talking about discharge planning, when you're talking about hepatitis C treatment, these are things that make it very difficult when you have an uncertain length of stay, even coordinating their orthopedic follow-up that's scheduled in two weeks. Like, do we need to rearrange that so that there's a correctional officer team that can take it or will they be out by then? There are so many of these moving pieces that make it difficult to deliver healthcare. With naloxone, ideally we'd be giving naloxone to everyone as they leave. But to your point, a lot of these people will go to court, they'll be released, they'll take a plea bargain there, and they will beeline back to freedom with no desire to go back to the DOC to pick up their clothes, to pick up their medications, to pick up their naloxone. Even if they're being discharged from the facility, a lot of times their primary goal is getting out. And so the minor step, which I, you know, always was kind of a challenge of going out to a cabinet and bringing the lot zone um, to someone has surprisingly always been a major barrier. And so one of the interventions that we implemented while I was there was this idea of a vending machine, which the LA County Jail had done very successfully, where you don't have to meet face-to-face -face with a person. You don't have to rely on a correctional officer going down the hall to get you a naloxone. Um, you don't have to request it. You can have some privacy where you go to a vending machine that has some other stuff too, like ponchos or condoms, and get your own naloxone without having to like, interact with a person. So it reduces any possible perceived stigma. Um, and it turns out the Rhode Island Department of Health is actually implementing these not just in correctional facilities, but in shelters and in other, you know, highly dense areas of people who use drugs. And so this has now been implemented not only at the, the intake services center, but a lot of the probation and parole buildings and is one other way to kind of increase community access to naloxone to reverse opioid overdose. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember doing a project about 10 years ago. We had a problem in the, the parallel here. The problem was People who have chronic health conditions that make them more vulnerable to vaccine preventable illnesses, when they leave the hospital, there's a similar sort of like it's far more organized. They're designed to deliver health care, but they're not designed to say, I need to give you a shot before you go. They're lining up long term care and family and equipment and wheelchairs. There's a lot that goes into discharge planning, leaving the hospital for anybody who's had to do that. And so the thing that would fall in is we're like, wow, we're really not getting you know, somebody's fluid, like the person was willing to get it. We got their consent, but it just never happened. And so we broke it down to say, well, why don't we just give immunizations while they're there? So we said, why don't we do that? And there was just a, I, I meant to share it with you, but I, there was a new paper from LA County 
or I think all the correctional, the California state prisons, where they gave naloxone to everybody in prison. That's and maybe right. you read this. And they actually That's reversed right. overdoses in prison. This is, I think this is the new, this is like the- um, Because naloxone can't hurt anybody, just to be safe. Right. Naloxone is completely safe and effective. If you use it on somebody who's not had any opioids, nothing happens. If they're blue on the ground and not breathing, you save their life, period. So go ahead, sorry. I think, I just to, to echo your point that I think this is kind of the next frontier is in-facility naloxone access which you know brings up a lot of these harm reduction conversations where you say well people in jail and prison aren't using drugs obviously because they're in jail and prison so why would they need access to naloxone um and it turns out that there is some drug use in jails and prison there's contraband being smuggled in often though with access to treatment with access to buprenorphine with access to methadone you're dramatically decreasing the demand from an economic standpoint of of drug use if you're treating people's addictions if you're treating cravings if you're treating the need for use um if you're treating the underlying neurological uh medical model of disease of addiction those are going to be much less prevalent which is why i think in rhode island we do see you know no opioid overdose deaths in the facility since the program started and really kind of addressing those concerns. And so, but, but, but I do think that in facility naloxone is going to be one of the big net steps to really try to prevent opioid overdose in, in facilities. One quick question I want to get, to. do you think it's easier again, just like with your experience that we don't have, would it be easier to get people to accept naloxone on admission as they enter the jail, as they cycle through? Another thing to remember is that people who have naloxone are automatically first responders to help someone else. You don't give it to yourself. So one of the ideas here is that you're saturating high-risk uh, groups of folks who, who may interact with one another, these high-risk uh, people doing these high, higher-risk activities. Is that easier to do than doing the treatment? I mean, your whole tenure, you had medication treatment. It's just normal here, which is, again, very, very strange to other places like LA County where they don't have treatment. And it probably takes, my guess is it takes a much bigger lift to do a treatment program than to say like, let's give naloxone to everybody and they can have it when they're here and they can take it with them. What do you think? You know, I think that's reasonable. Realistically, for whatever reason, it's naloxone seems to be more of a challenge for us, to be honest, than medication for addiction <laughs> treatment. So I think part of that is that intake process where you're having all these people who are high risk for these, you know, public health things that we want to intervene on as, as public health specialists and pharmacists and physicians, they're often coming in at not a great spot in their life. They've just been arrested. They might be under the influence of something. And so it's not always a great time for like education and, and you know, provision of healthcare resources, but people who are in withdrawal, it is a great time to initiate them on medication for opioid use disorder because you can stop them from feeling like crap. You can maintain them and give them a sense of like, this is something I want to be on. Whereas, you know, providing the lot zone, especially on intake or even, you know, which is not a great time for them or a discharge, which is not a great time for them. You know, I think paradoxically makes it somewhat challenging, though we have had some success in getting people um, naloxone. The other thing that we try to do is naloxone, to your point, that Robert, naloxone for visitors of people in jail and prison. Like these are people who are at high risk in the community and the communities that are being affected. And realistically, not to go off into like a criminal justice talk, but there's a lot of people who are committing crimes that don't get incarcerated. So it's not like we incarcerate everyone who is has drug use or everyone that has uh, um, some exposure to the, the criminal justice system. And so by getting into these communities in any way we can, it can kind of help be another targeted approach to harm reduction. And Jake, first day talked about, I said, do you listen to podcasts? We're going to make podcasts. And Jake, what what kind of podcasts did you say you like to listen to? You know, true crime, everything like that. <laughs> which which his, all his colleagues say too. So 
I don't know, <laughs> Justin, do you listen to True Crime podcast? Is it just too close? I, I started listening to Crime Town. I, I'm a bad Rhode Islander in that I didn't finish. I'm not going to lie. There was a great one in Baltimore that I liked. But I will say, may, and maybe this is where it's going, but I'm going to jump on any opportunity to talk about the criminal legal system and criminal justice reform because incarceration causes harm. And so exposure to the criminal justice system, exposure to the criminal legal system is harmful from a public health standpoint. And that is not a controversial statement. Um, in part because like the criminal legal system is not designed to positively benefit public health. You know, it's arguably for security, it's for health and safety of individuals. It is not to reduce opiate overdose. It is not meant to reduce the risk of transmission of hepatitis C and HIV. Um, it's meant to punish, incapacitate, and try to rehabilitate individuals who have committed a crime. Though if you look at any state's budget, you'll see you know, the rehabilitation component is always far lower on the priority list. And so one of the other things that we can do as public health leaders to address the opioid overdose epidemic, to, to better address a lot of these health issues that, that come up is to find ways to treat people in the community and not incarcerate them, to expand access to treatment, low barrier treatment in the community, to addiction medicine services, to mental health services, to divert individuals that need treatment and kind of address these public health concerns, especially of mental health and addiction. That's the low-hanging fruit through a medical system rather than through a judicial system of punishment. This concept of decarceration is really one of the biggest things that the public health champions can do. And this is, you know, not progressive Justin saying, you know, these extreme ideas, but the American Public Health Association, the largest public health organization has put out a position statement that not only supports decarceration, but quote, working towards the principles of prison abolition, meaning getting prisons as they exist completely out and really working on a better way to rehabilitate individuals to become better neighbors than just responding to drug use through punishment and, and ostracizing them from society. Well, that's good because in about a month, I'm doing a talk on decriminalization of drugs and pharmacist support for it because we're the, the National Pharmacist Organization is the only one that has a statement that is not supportive of, of decriminalization. Mm. So I'm hoping to educate some pharmacists at a national meeting and, and pass policies so that we can stand as uh, with many of, the, many of the principles you've done. And we'll probably have a podcast on it again. We Excellent. did one a couple of years ago with one, actually one of my co-presenters. So if you're listening to the regimen, find the, find the decriminalization lecture and we'll do that. But one of the, I'm going to try to transition here, Jake. So keep that in. Uh, one of the things that shows where healthcare and, and another thing that people can think about is calling it criminal justice is people don't actually like to call it justice because it's not justice. Uh, so some people call it the criminal injustice system, but I like your, the carceral system, call it what it is not what it's trying to be. One of those sort of errors in policy, I like to say, is that we know about and have a tough time fixing is the idea that people who are covered under insurance lose their insurance, lose their public insurance. So you have a guaranteed right to health care, constitutional right to health care in the prison, but you don't have a constitutional right to health care coverage in the prison and often for a long time afterwards. So let's talk about some innovations that are happening uh, in the country about around that, Jake. Well, if anything to build on that, you know, oftentimes it's marginal populations who may be in and out of the prison system or who experience opioid use disorder more in their communities. These are the populations that may benefit the most from public services. And to build on what you just said, Dr. Bradford, um, once you become incarcerated, then you are suspended 
from public services like Medicaid, the public insurance program. So, you know, you go from a constitutional right to care to then being released and kind of being dropped off that support system where, you know, then it goes back to what Justin said before, where we should build on rehabilitating and treating from the source rather than band-aid on things or kind of punishing and, you know, moving back towards this carceral model. So on the stance of continuity of care and Medicaid, I wanted to talk about California advocates who figured out how to offer re-entry services for Medicaid for those who have lost their right to it um, due to incarceration. And now they can establish continued and monitored care for adults and adolescents and connect them with community providers prior to release, which is arguably the most vital part, connecting them and getting them prepared with these services and continuity of care as they're being released prior to release so that hopefully we can reduce recidivism and um, reincarceration rates, mortality. Well, especially reincarceration due to drug use. I mean, yeah. that's the, what people feel, I mean, one, one thing we should probably remind people is that opioid use disorder is actually not very prevalent compared to the number of people who are using drugs or using drugs yeah. for benefit. You know, as pharmacists, it's what we, and, and clinicians, it's what we do. So the people who have OUD are using without regards to consequence. So that's why crimes are committed it's to try to treat their condition, to try to not go into withdrawal. When you're on medications, that doesn't happen. And so I, I can't remember if there's the fact that Justin mentioned, but when people are on these medications, there's less crime. It's very well done for decades, we've known that. And so the fact that the carceral system refuses to use the thing that actually makes there less crime, the cynic in me starts thinking about the prison industrial complex and things that we definitely should have you back on to just talk about that. But maybe you want to talk about sort of a, a recent, you know, one of the reasons that we picked this topic for the podcast was a, a really stunning report from the UCLA law COVID behind bars project. So just coming back to that. And as Justin said, you know, there's a mortality risk to being incarcerated and it's growing. Jake, you want to talk about that? So a recent report from UCLA law COVID behind bars project showed there was a 50% increase in mortality in prisoners the first year of the COVID pandemic 2020 as compared to the year before in 2019. Is this surprising? Why do you think this happened? Can you speak a bit on this? Yeah, you know, I think it was a major issue in the beginning of the pandemic was that we knew that there was high transmissions rate around jails and prisons. People are, you know, closer together um, by design. Was, I remember one in the early months of the pandemic that something like 20% of all COVID cases in the state of Illinois were linked to Cook County Jail. So again, this is like one of these arguments that very much jails are a critical touch point for um, infection. Um, and the other thing is that it often jails and prisons are filled with these people who are disproportionately affected by COVID-19 that are affected by a lot of the other structural issues, uh, social determinants of health that decrease people's health. And so the exact rationale why people in prison had a higher mortality, I don't think it was too surprising, though, you know, I think it's very multifactorial and demonstrate this is just often a population that is overlooked. You know, one of the other things that we fortunately actually didn't utilize too often, but we very early on had access to monoclonal antibodies. So if anyone got sick and was available, and it, because it's a podcast, I don't want to use brand names because we're all pharmacists, but I'm not going to try to attempt the, farm, uh, the, the brand name for the other antiviral for COVID-19, but we had very early access to these medications. And I think other facilities probably did not. And so, you know, the UCLA Behind, Behind Bars Project and the COVID-19 Prison Project, all did this great 
data on bringing spotlight to the health of incarcerated individuals. And they both have continued to now really focus on mortality. There was a New York Times article, uh, Aaron Lippman, who was a part of the UCLA project and I went to college with, is like writing about and talking. So um, very cool. And, and Lauren Brinkley Rubenstein with the now third city is looking at mortality rates um, in jails and prisons. And it's really kind of shining the spotlight of this is a patient population that needs services, that needs care um, and, and continues to, to really need resources. What were the harm reduction and preventative measures that were going on inside the prison system during this time? Was testing a daily thing? Did you have available supplies regularly? We did. We, um, when I got there, we were very implementing KN95 masking all the time. We did as much social distancing as possible, which meant increasing what we call keep on person medications. So reducing Medline delivery of medications, directly observed therapy is very common in prison and jails and doing more keep on person where people could manage their own medications. Um, we had access to a lot of cleaning supplies. We had like the Department of Health coming in to try to help address ventilation components, vaccination, you know, isolation and quarantine, which is very difficult in a prison. That is a whole nother podcast episode. And there's a very, frankly, tragic component of some of the precautions that that was very challenging to, to implement um, just because it puts someone, you know, without a lot of social interaction in a jail or prison for 10 to 14 days. But we did a lot of evidence-based work. And then, you know, other places, the other big thing, the other policy step was decarceration, getting people out of, of jail and prison um, to try to reduce the the burden that was that was in behind the walls. Well, I think that, I mean, again, totally another podcast and we want to try to close out here. There's so many great topics and really appreciate all these great things is this idea of, I can't remember which state it was. I think it was New York where they they didn't jail people for low-level crimes and then community crime didn't go up. And it's like, okay, we've done the experiment. Yeah why put people in prison if the community is safe? It was the same thing we saw with OUD medications and that if we give people a month's supply of methadone, they'll be fine. They do Don't fine. make them- They do fine. They'll do fine. And again, and I just can't, I, you know, in preparing for this podcast, it's just the ironic thing of, we take these folks, we isolate and quarantine them in prison, and then we further isolate and quarantine them in prison when they're actually probably better off in the community, exposed to fewer people. And the COVID precautions actually apply to all respiratory illnesses. You talk about ventilation, you know, my partner works in a school and I'm like, why are schools? And I have kids. So there's like four of us at four different places bringing all kinds of, we have super immune systems, yeah. at least right now. <laughs> but the idea well, that like, when you have a gathering of vulnerable people, like do hospitals have good ventilation? Yes. Should nursing homes? Yes. Do they? No. Do prisons? No, because they're the focus of a lot of money spent on putting people in prison, but not taking care of them there. So uh, Jake, you want to have your last question for, for Justin? If I can just chime in to, oh, yeah. to, the, to yeah. the ventilation, the okay. one other thing that, you know, I think is always like just amazing in Rhode Island is that maximum security facility in Rhode Island was built in 1878. And so it was around during the Spanish flu. It has seen two global <laughs> pandemics. The ventilation, we tried to do as best we could. Prisons are not designed for healthcare delivery. They're not designed for COVID-19 precautions. From an outside perspective, it is a very cool building though. Um, going in there, they have like the massive movie keys where it's like this big and you stick it in the lock, but which I can cut that, but. You mean, you mean like a Harry Potter key, like an iron yes. key with a... Like it's like the size of my head. And if it ain't broke, I guess. Like stick it in the giant lock. And you... Okay. And you went there. All right. What's the regimen for prison health? The regimen for prison health, I would say, um, is decarceration. 
is working towards the movement of prison abolition. And I don't mean to say that so that everyone turns out and people aren't familiar with the idea of prison abolition. It's intellectually curious they should look up. And it's not to say that everyone should be released from prison tomorrow. Um, there are ways, though, to set people up for success without relying on prisons to treat mental health, to treat addiction medicine, to frankly treat unstable housing. Like we rely on jails and prisons to treat a lot of public health issues that rather than supporting through social services and healthcare delivery, we lean on the, the criminal legal system. And so I would say the regimen first and foremost is uh, removing the toxic exposure that is incarceration. And then for people who are incarcerated, harm reduction by offering them services, whether it's hep C treatment, medication for OUD, setting them up for discharge planning so that when they go back to the community at that highest risk point, it's a smooth transition to welcome them back to, to the community to help set them up to be good neighbors um, and to really take a public health lens to the criminal legal system. That's fantastic. All right. I'd like to thank our featured guest, Dr. Justin Burke, for being here today and taking a deep look at prison health systems and what we can do next to advance care here in Rhode Island. Be sure to follow at FarmD Pub Health on Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to at FarmD Pub Health on YouTube. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Smash that subscribe button now. Listen in wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google. We'll catch you next time.